0: Welcome to Pivot to First. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel. I'm the CTO at Pivot CX. Every day I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the industry with one goal, turning hiring and people strategy into a competitive advantage. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel with Pivot CX, and today I'm joined on Pivot to First by David Bernstein, our Executive Vice President of Corporate Development and newest team member. And I'm very, very privileged today to have Carrie Sparrow, the most innovative CEO in the HR tech industry. Uh, he's an award-winning CEO, and uh, one thing I found out about him just before this, uh, this started is he's a fellow submariner and nuclear engineer. So he and I actually have that in common, and I think we both meet maybe two or three people who uh, have been Navy nukes uh, in a year. Um, before, after his service in the Navy, uh, he was with uh, Willis Towers Watson – He was started as a consultant, and he uh, left as the global practice leader for HR function effectiveness consulting. That's a mouthful. He's also served as the VP of HR performance and analytics at Cargill. So one thing I know for sure about Kerry is he's a data guy, and he's currently the CEO at Greenwich HR, where he's helping answer some of the most important questions about human capital with better, more up-to-date data. Kerry, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk to you guys. Yeah, so I was really surprised. You and I have something in common. We're both uh, we're both mooks in the U.S. Navy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I like I was saying, uh, the Navy was kind enough to pay for my uh, my undergrad education, and uh, I got to I got to serve for about eight years on a couple different submarines.
0: They took good care of me too, so I, I have no regrets. I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah. So, uh, tell us a little bit about Greenwich and why you started it.
1: Sure. I founded Greenwich in 2015. The whole purpose of Greenwich.hr is to make the labor market more transparent, uh, which is a pretty geeky mission, actually. But having worked in the HR space, uh, helping companies build uh, and then execute uh, human capital strategies, HR functions, HR infrastructure... um, one of the conclusions I had was that one of the biggest bottlenecks for uh, really solid effectiveness, not just for HR, but for companies overall, was not so much the processes and not so much the technology. Those were things that have been through waves of improvement, but it really was the quality of the data. And one area that seemed like there was a, a huge opportunity was is in, in the transparency around labor market data, specifically who's hiring, what are they hiring for, how much are they paying, what's. Skills are needed. What supply of talent is available out there? All of those, all of those pieces of information are really just frankly horrible uh, in in uh, today's state. The traditional way of measuring uh, that kind of data is really quite antiquated, and it still is. And I thought and and built a team that thinks that uh, we can do do this a better way. And we bring up a totally different approach to evaluating what's actually happening in the labor market. Uh, That's real time. It's forward looking. It's not backwards looking. It's uh, it's. It's uh, it allows for really deep analysis, uh, and it also allows for really innovative and very efficient um, applications and creative applications of, of uh, of that that market. To put it in perspective, the labor market world in the in the U.S. right now, salaries and wages are about eighteen trillion dollars a year with a T. It's it's you know, except possibly with some financial markets, it's the biggest market uh, in the U.S. And yet the information about it is completely antiquated. It is lagged. It's uh, by, by months. It's not transparent. It's based on really small sample sizes. It's highly inaccurate. There's no standards for how to look at things. I mean, I could just go on and on and on about all the deficiencies. And anytime you know, anyone with any economics training knows that anytime you have a really big market and you have really bad information about it, it means that the market is really inefficient. And inefficiency in the labor market means companies can't find the talent they need. They're not paying them appropriately. There's big inequities that happen. Individuals can't find uh, the kind of work that Leads to the most fulfilling contributions of their own talents and the development of their own their own skills. This is something that touches every everyone, every individual, every family, every community, and yet it is extraordinarily uh, poor as a market because of the quality of information. So we set out to to change that. It's a bit of a, a geeky uh, aspiration, but since 2015, we've we've built and maintain are continuing to grow what, by our counts, is the largest and the fastest growing source of real time labor market intelligence uh, that exists Um, and we sell access to that to all kinds of folks uh, ranging from investment managers hedge funds big corporations uh, media companies consulting companies technology companies that embed our intelligence so if you want to know what's happening with with pay in the market right now if you want to know who's hiring for what kind of jobs right now uh, if you want to be able to understand in detail in a way that's very credible um, how skills requirements vary uh, from, you know, Dallas to Atlanta, for example, uh, for a certain kind of position. That's the those are the kinds of questions that that our data can answer, and um, especially in today's market, which is so dynamic, where pay is changing so quickly and it's so localized. Um, and there's all kinds of questions about, are people resigning or no? There are, you know, it's just really, really hard to c- compete you know, for talent. Is pay going up or over here it's going down and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, well beyond any kind of traditional uh, comp management um, you know, you know, uh, salary uh, raises that anyone's typically seen. Uh, that kind of information is more important than ever. So
0: it's a, you bring up a really, really interesting point which is the way that labor market data, it, it, as it's currently packaged up and reported in the Wall Street Journal and everywhere else, uh, the methods that are used to collect that, um, you know, I, I got to work a little bit with the U.S. Department of Labor in a former job, and I was just blown away by, um, hey, they've been doing it the same way since the 1800s. Um, not a lot has changed in the methodologies they're using to collect that data, so it, it, it's kind of stale. Um, what what do you think the biggest uh, misconceptions are that um, CEOs and and business people have around labor market data?
1: Well, so the the I'll start with a really big one and then a few others. Um, the really big one is that even, even you know regardless of how attuned you are to the market, uh, whatever you think about what's happening with hiring and pay and the, you know So the labor market overall is in some way wrong. Right? And, and and that's one of the things. Our data platform was designed so that it could get so precise. We track about 80% of all the new jobs in the U.S. and in the developed countries that, that we were in. And we're in about 59 countries. Uh, so, and- so you're
0: not like, like the current, you know, if you go look at the labor market data that gets reported in, in the newspapers and all of that, most of that data comes from surveys that, right. that really – Aren't very up to date, right?
1: Right. Well, the, the surveys are uh, have a few. F- uh, you know, well, first of all, let's give credit where mm-hmm. credits due. There is an enormous amount of statistical rocket science that goes into the way that the government evaluates uh, the the labor economy, and there's you know, so there's the smartest you know folks in the world are involved in in that question, but they're limited based on where they're getting their information from. As you point out, it's largely survey based. Um, and surveys are, are, are debilitated by small sample sizes, and they measure things that currently are as opposed to what they're going to be. They also, by measuring what they currently are, they're actually measuring past decisions. And so when you look at, you know, who has a job or if you look at what somebody's getting paid, what they're getting paid right now is actually a product of a decision that was made typically one to two years ago. It was a decision that was made on how to give an individual a raise, but that was based on uh, decisions about overall budgets, which were set, you know, two budget cycles ago. And so they're really significantly lagged. And and so that leads to kind of one of the, the next biggest you know misperceptions is that you can actually manage uh, a company based on um, what what you think is happening from published economic reports and and published pay uh, pay analysis, and that's just not true because the you know, here is an example, over the last 18 months, for all jobs in the U.S. Um, in all markets, uh, the median advertised pay level uh, has gone up by 30%, 3.0%. So that's 20% a year, all jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, in some markets, it's gone up much more, and in other markets, it's actually dropped for certain kinds of jobs. And so. The economic data washes over all of that. And it doesn't keep up either. So if you're tracking on an annual basis, if you're tracking data that's published on an annual basis, um, it's not at all keeping up with what's happening in the locations that you're worried about, with the specific jobs that you're worried about, and at the time scale that, that you're worried about. Everything is totally different. It used to be that that was okay, but especially since uh, the pandemic, that's not okay anymore.
0: So, so if I'm making decisions, like I'm, I'm getting ready to make a job offer to somebody and, and I go take a look at, you know, fill in the blank government website that gives me, you know, kind of salary expectations and that kind of thing. What you're telling me here is that that data could be bad for a couple of reasons. One is it's not local. And the other reason is it's based on what companies are paying people, which includes all those people that have just been getting their little cost of living raises and all that. And doesn't reflect what I actually have to pay to get somebody to take my job.
1: That's exactly right, right? So the the historical data that is what every other site is going to show you is kind of the average of the economy based on past decisions and that doesn't do you any good from two fronts. Not only hiring people, but pay has gone up so much that everyone every employee right now is a target for recruiters, every employee. And so if you don't know what's going on in the market for pay for all the jobs in your company right now, it's a huge retention risk and, and countless CEOs and heads of HR can attest to this right now. Um, so it used to be that you know, the mantra was um, that employees quit bad managers. But when pay is going up at the level that it's going up right now, employees are quitting to go get a better pay.
2: And you've seen that trend like spiking now is that well it's really it's
1: been going on you know for uh for about the last 15 months uh and uh and in fact you know we looked at it as a company normally we just sell uh access to our our data platform to folks that build applications and and consulting services and other services on on top of that data so we sell to pretty savvy analytics groups um Mm But we saw what was happening and said there's got to be an application that gets, you know, this kind of insight into the hands of, you know, all kinds of anyone who needs it. Regardless of their analytic capability, regardless of the size of their company and, and their their budgets, and so uh, we ended up building an application to do that. It's actually we've got a demo of it on our website. Anyone can go out and, and try it out. So, yeah, but no, it's I've, I've seen the de- I've yeah. seen the demo,
0: and I, I've got to say this: it 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 is really eye opening. And it, it you're right; it's something that somebody at any level in business really could use. Uh, whether you're a small company that's just trying to make that that one correct hire. Or, you know, you're a growing growing startup or you're a huge company, you, any way you go, knowing what the facts are so you can act on them really makes a, a huge difference, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So That's- any any other areas where people just get it wrong with labor market data that you see all the time?
1: Well, something you said around it being local um, is, is so true. Uh, and historically there's been no way to measure this but if you look I'll just use another example if you look at um, what you're going to need to pay a nurse uh, a lot of a lot of that is actually based on what skills what skills you need and if you look at which skills are in demand the most they vary dramatically across across metro areas, like in Atlanta, where you've got all the research uh, that's going on. um, Research specialties, advanced degrees, project management capabilities, command wage premiums. If you go to Chicago, where there's a lot of competition, um, financial acumen, um, financial management, operations management all carry premiums. If you go to Dallas where there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of need for different clinical specialties, it's all clinical specialties that uh, that drive wage premiums. And so the labor market really is local. I mean, it's the one thing to remember the most, I think, is that every labor market is local. Whatever you see at a state level or a national level is very limited in its usefulness in terms of your ability to attract and retain the talent that uh, that you need cuz All the situations are entirely local. Now, what's interesting, too, is that with the um, advent of pervasive remote work and hybrid work, what's local anymore? Because if you have work that can be done remotely and you're in in kind of a a low-cost area, um, your local talent is getting offered positions from high-cost areas. Uh, so you're not competing, you know, in a low cost environment anymore. You're competing in a very high cost environment for those because local just took on a very different meaning, uh, for the, for those folks. And likewise, if you are in a very high cost area, uh, and you've got high price talent that can, can work remotely, uh, a lot of companies already know this. Um, if you're, uh, if you've kind of embraced, uh, a, a, a remote work approach and can support that, then you've got really the nation and the world, uh, as your, uh, your potential sourcing. Yeah.
2: And then on the flip of that is when a job can't be performed local. I've, ha- I've um, had probably four or five conversations in the last couple of weeks alone where um, the customer said to me, hey, you know, because of pay being paying being the topic, regardless of skills, my competition is no longer uh, other companies in my exact business, mm-hmm. right? Because if they can now get a job at Walmart for the same, right? So now yeah. I've got all these other kinds of uh, talent competitors that now I have to kind of think about Right? Am I am I paying more than the local Walmart or McDonald's as well? Right? And, and even huh. though I might be a, a caregiving service or a, or a teaching business or right these different right because now yeah. the talent can move anywhere right
1: right uh, based right. on pay as you were saying so, anyway, so it's really fascinating. We stopped in a uh, in a fast food restaurant on a recent trip. My uh, my family and I uh, walking through the door, they they had listed out the starting pay for uh, counter corks and. It was you know for day shift it was sixteen fifty an hour for any shift it was um fifteen fifty an hour, and uh in that state they allowed fourteen and fifteen year olds to work and for those folks it was uh it was about twelve bucks an hour so oh. you know you're absolutely right uh anyone who thinks that uh that anything between fifteen and twenty is a solid wage um has to realize that every other you know every other retail every other supply chain company um every other entry level uh position they're all they're all paying this, you know in the same range
0: yeah we we see it with our customers every day um we, and one of the areas that we are when we onboard a new customer there's always a period of time where they're wondering you know why why aren't we getting enough candidates and a lot of times it comes down to how they're marketing their jobs and is um, a really big component of that, and and this is this is something that I really hope that you can clear up for good for us. Um, pay transparency, how important is it?
1: Well, I I think for a variety of reasons, it's hugely hugely important. Uh, and I you know I think you guys are in the middle of kind of the the execution of the systemic changes that are coming about around pay transparency. It's interesting. I I think that a lot of companies are are very nervous about pay transparency, and there are a lot of forces um, that are working for pay transparency. There are um, job listing sites that if you're not providing pay ranges, they will... They will provide an, an estimate of what they think that is, which is kind of a risky proposition, if you ask me, um, for the the hiring company. There are locations and and states that are pushing, reg, uh, you know, legislation to require uh, pay transparency, largely under the you know under the uh, pursuit of uh, of equity in the you know pay equity in the work in the workforce. One of the things that's interesting, though, is if you know, there's a study that came out um, about two months ago that looked at uh, the impact of um, having pay ranges on job listings versus not and one of the things that study noted was that for those that do the average um, range is plus or minus 33 hmm. percent which which means you can have someone at the top end of the range that's making double somebody at the bottom of the range and still publish exactly the same range and so there's not there's not a whole lot of equity that's and uh, justice that's being served if if folks are are publishing ranges that are at that size and I think also it's it's sending an ambiguous signal to candidates when you've got ranges that are that wide. So but David, I got, got to ask you, I've got sure. to ask
0: you a question, David, and, oh, because you've been looking at this for years and years. And, and before you joined us, you're right in the middle of this too. So, um, you know, I'm getting ready to advertise a job, you know, what's the impact if I don't put a salary on that job? I mean,
2: right. So you're, you've got the, your comp- the comparison to those that do. And so the message it sends when right the ambiguity um and and in fact i have my i have a family member going through this right now where they you know there's that game that the recruiter plays up front and right and the and the candidates trying not to pigeonhole themselves too much up front so right it, it just creates you know a very awkward set of conversations at the beginning of the recruiting cycle without it so there's definitely advantages to letting you know to being very clear for the candidate up front um it should also reduce the amount of people that apply for jobs that they're not interested in the actual pay, right? Um, but, but I think what I've, what I've been seeing on the other side of this is um, if you publish a range, regardless of how wide the spread is, Carrie, I'm seeing a lot of chatter um, on the blogs and, and um, on the social conversations around um, it sets an expectation that the candidate thinks they're going to get offered at the high end, period. That's the <laughs> full stop, right? Regardless. Yeah. And so then you've got this other dynamic where you've set up a problem where What's supposed to be a great thing was you're making someone an offer and they should be exciting. And now they're disappointed because, and now you have to explain to them why they're not coming in at the high end of the range, right? For example. Right. And right. so, um, and then the other challenge I'm hearing about is okay, things have dynamically changed so much so quickly, but I've got all my existing employees. And so there's this high yep. pay disparity what do I do right for my existing people? Do I now have to bump them all up to cut? Yeah, up? exactly. What do I what do? I, do right? I
1: mean, wage compression is a huge issue right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the approach to, you know, that, that will sort itself out on that is as more and more companies realize that they're, they have to compete to keep their, their talent just as aggressively as they have to keep to find new talent, um, the answers you know, with that perspective will present themselves.
2: So those inequities, though, right? And I think it probably also will shine a light on other pay disparities like gender and ethnicities mm-hmm. and other things that are yeah. probably all the biases that have been hiding under the ugly rock there, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it, it's a two-sided coin, right? There, there, I can definitely see the pros to it, but um, I don't know. Long answer to your short question, Mike, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's multifaceted for sure, Um Kerry, uh, have you started to um, have any of your customers really adopt this kind of full pay transparency and, and use using the data that you can share example? Not as with? not as much.
1: I mean, more more of our clients are looking for competitive intelligence on what other people are paying to set their set their own rates and understand what uh, uh, what it what it takes for them to attract talent. Uh, I would say, in the on the human capital side, I will say uh, the rising the rising. Um, advertised pay levels have caught the attention of uh, of the investment community in looking at what the cost structures of companies are going to be and, and how adaptive uh, companies are at responding to the labor conditions that we've got now.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, certainly all that pay trickles down to cost of goods, right?
1: So, right. I mean, yeah. everything that we just talked about, about transparency, we didn't talk about where there's savings opportunities there. You know, if you're running a company, there's... You know, there's not really a whole lot of good news in terms of, you know, labor cost uh, savings other than, you know, layoffs and automation, uh, which I think we're going to see more pressure to rationalize organization structures and, and we're going to continue to see advancements in the areas of automation.
2: Well, especially if you can't find the talent, what do you do, right? Then right. You, right. The, yeah, that's right. what you got
1: to do. Yeah. Retain
2: jobs, right? right. Mm-hmm. And what, yeah. That, and then, so it's a one-time sunk investment in a, in a robot or something or, or software, but yeah, then... Uh, then you, they don't complain, they don't take vacations, and they don't ask for pay raises, right? Right. So, right. so, so we're you
0: know. back to back to the 90s where productivity is king again, huh? I,
1: You know, I don't know if it's going to be productivity for productivity's sake. I think it's going to be, you know, finding more efficient ways to get work done because the labor is not available uh, to the extent that it was. I mean, the, you know, for the last 15 years, uh, we've had – historically low unemployment but we didn't see the labor shortages that we're seeing now and these are sustained labor shortages so it's not like all the workers just left
0: yeah you you bring up a really important point which is is the labor shortage we're seeing right now is sustained it's it's not something that um i mean i've been hearing for years that we're going to go into an era where we're going to have a labor, labor shortage one day the demographics are going to change and um, at some point and, and I'm not sure when it happened, but it seems like things flipped and and the current conditions we have aren't going to go away anytime soon,
1: yeah, I think that there's a lot of question you know there's a lot of ambiguity about what's actually happening right now with the supply of of talent you know there's the the perspectives of the Great Resignation. There's the perspective that people have made too much money, you know, during the pandemic by doing nothing, and um, they're, you know, they're still living off that money. I don't, I don't know if those those perspectives are necessarily. Correct. I do think people recognize they have more choices now and they're probably choosing uh, places that are, uh, you know, more attractive uh, to them personally. They've got more choices also based on pay, uh, as we were mm-hmm. just talking about, uh, which is, you know, creating a pinch across across all companies. I do think that there's lingering effects with, with the restrictions uh, around workplace restrictions around COVID um, that haven't completely sorted themselves out yet. So that's a,
0: that's another one where there's a big question out there, you know, do you demand everybody goes back to the office or not? And I, I do, this is anecdotal, but from talking to uh, many of my software developer friends that maybe moved from San Francisco to somewhere where the cost of living is lower, they're finding themselves getting laid off and uh, it's because they didn't want to go back to the office.
1: Well, I, you know, there's several different stories that are playing out uh, on this, right? There's, there's companies that are pushing a return, a return to, you know, an office work environment, even on kind of a, a part-time or a hybrid, a hybrid basis. There are companies that frankly aren't, aren't, don't have a lot of urgency to do it. And there's a third group of companies that didn't exist two years ago. And almost all those companies you know, started uh, in an environment where work was remote and they've got business models and operating models that are remote. And there's a growing number of those companies um, every week. And so I I am skeptical that the notion of going back to the office um, is ever going to look like what it was. Um, and uh, I'm skeptical also that those companies that are pushing hard to get employees back in the office are going to be as competitive as they want to be. There may be some where the social aspect of of innovation is so important to what they're doing um, that they need it, but I think that's a really small fraction of companies. And that's just my own opinion. It's not based on an extensive analysis other than just talking to a lot of folks.
2: So, you know, the other thing that I'm hearing a lot more about uh, is this concept of quiet quitting Have you been tracking this whole thing as well? No, say
1: more about it. Yeah. uh,
2: Not quitting your job officially, but not feeling like you're getting paid enough. So you just kind of disengage and you do less. You don't go up right That the engagement topic. So you're still there, but you're not giving it your all. Quiet Mm -hmm. quitting. It's kind of an interesting topic, especially in the younger crowd that tends to use TikTok and others. There's a lot of chatter around this concept of, of disengaged workforce essentially
1: right so we've been hiring right. a lot and uh, i'm i've run across tons of folks that were interested in part-time positions with my company while still keeping their existing physicians. Uh, positions it's like well how how will you have time to do it they're like oh we got plenty of time right right i mean mm. so that's uh, flyers, huh? well <laughs> Yeah, I didn't say we hired them. But uh the, <laughs> right. but to your your point about you know, quite quitting, uh they could, you know, could uh be doing lots of things with with the extra time that they they right. have kind of built into their work schedule.
2: And then not giving it their all to their existing right. place or it, right? And, and right. so those old ideas that you know, we paid people and they expected, you know, we traded dollars for hours and expected their all and maybe even above and beyond and all that is it's changing. The dynamics in this in the, in the labor market are just tremendously different, right?
1: Yeah. So. Well, and I think you know the in addition to kind of all the cost implications and the productivity implications, there's a whole you know emerging culture version 2.0 that is being defined as we speak. I mean, the notion of corporate culture, I think, is is getting completely disrupted and it's not just during the time of the pandemic i think what it's going to be like going forward is is and i i don't know i mean this whole topic that we've been on for a few minutes minutes now is just you know some of the you know the underlying trend that's shaping you know what culture is actually going to mean but i i actually believe you know to the point about quite quitting i think culture is going to be even more important going forward than it has been because what's going to hold people to a company
0: Especially when, when jobs are so, I mean, it's so easy to get something new and better and and you can have one or two or maybe even three of them. Right. Yeah. So um, you know, last, last big question for, for both, both you, Carrie and David. So um, you know, I was watching the news, they say, Hey, we have a recession going on. What does the data really say about the job market? If we have a recession, what, what's really going to happen here?
1: So, Overall, um, the job market hasn't really gotten a memo about the recession yet. Uh, the hiring is, is still strong and going up. Uh, it reached a little bit of a plateau over the last few months, uh, but a plateau that is still, uh, like two to 300% higher than it was 15 months ago, depending on the industry and the, the sector that you're looking at. So enormous, uh, demand for jobs right now, uh in historic, uh, in historic uh, uh, standards and, and not going down, you know, on a week to week basis. Um, wages are continuing to go up, which means that costs are going to continue to go up, but there seems to be a lot of money out there for people to be spending in. Uh, so you know, like I just saw an article uh, this morning, Walmart due to, you know, some pretty aggressive uh, discounting is seeing sales, you know, continuing to go up while everyone's talking about a recession. It seems like there are certain places that are most sensitive to, to interest rates where there absolutely is a pullback in the economy. And there's probably a lot of companies that are using the opportunity to reevaluate where they're spending. Um, and that could lead to more of a slowdown. But, I, you know, it's not showing up in the hiring data yet. I'll tell you that. You know, yeah.
0: it's, it's interesting because I always look through the lens of tech companies because, you know, that's the world I live in. And and tech is an area that's really sensitive to interest rates. It And I think real estate are both mm-hmm. very much that way. So a lot of what you read about bad news at tech companies really is it's harder to get capital right now to, to support these really rapidly growing companies that aren't very profitable. And, and so they have to make some adjustments to live within their means. Um, And then real estate is real estate. Mm -hmm. Interest rates affect the cost of a home and all that very directly. So it's really, really interesting to see that. So if you are a tech company and and you're looking at laying off a bunch of developers, um, here's, here's the bad news. There's a ton of companies out there that can hire these people that aren't tech companies. Yep. Good example might be your old employer, Cargill.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of places where it's not slowing down, a lot of investment that's going on. I mean, back to the points we were just talking about earlier, if the the labor's not there, then the pressure on automation and tech is going up. So if you connect
2: the dots, like you said, if Walmart's lowering prices, meanwhile, the cost of gas is going down, so you don't have to put as much of that money into the tank. Instead, you can now spend it, and you can get more for your money. And now we're approaching, you you couple that with, we're about to hit um, holiday hiring season, right? So there's got to be some uptick, even further right on the needs of the, that kind of uh talent, so it's just i, I don't know uh, when we would see the recession is it going to all come crashing down in february
1: right yeah, you know? I mean <laughs> I don't know I mean i I think we could end up talking ourselves into a recession I mean a, a lot of times you know the business outlook is based on confidence, and the more we talk about you know how a recession is is probably coming up, the more we start making individual small decisions that lead, you know could lead us there, but I do think um i you know, we pay pretty close attention to a huge picture on hiring, which is really indicative of confidence in the, uh, the overall economy. And that's not really slowing down. Cool. So
0: I've really enjoyed the conversation so far. Uh, I've got a couple of quick questions, uh, Carrie for you and, uh, we can call today. So, uh, first off, what business book have you read that really, uh, has had a really big impact on you?
1: So most of my business uh, um, reading, I was actually listening. I listened to a few podcasts, but there is one book that I read uh, which is Bob Iger's autobiography. Uh, he's the the former CEO of Disney when they went through some of the biggest uh, acquisitions. Uh, as a friend of Steve Jobs. He's a, you know just amazing individual who had amazing insight on huge deals, but also really interesting career and navigating really tricky leadership uh, uh, um, points and uh, and times in that career and just a ton of a ton of insight there. So I really really like that. Um, on the podcast front i'll tell you that uh being a small business i love uh, guy Raz's uh how i built this uh which is interviewing all all kind of um uh startup founders that uh have, most of whom have made it and what and and is and hearing their experiences is a huge point of validation usually <laughs> <laughs> favorite movie you know it varies um I would say my favorite movie from within the last few years was Black Panther. I just loved it. Loved it. Whole family loved it.
0: Okay. And is there anything that you'd like to add that we didn't cover today or anything you
1: want to say to the audience? Um, So I think we could have spent, you know, hours and hours, uh, you know, riffing on on what's happening with with the jobs and the economy. I do think um, that, you know, if you're in a position where you feel like you, you don't know what's going on with, with hiring and wages, then um, you're not alone and you're absolutely accurate. And, uh, you know, our whole purpose of being as a company was designed to make it easy your life easier. So um, you might want to check us out.
0: Kerry Sparrow, CEO of Greenwich. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Mike. David. David, thanks. Glad you're here.